welcome to the Real Clear Values podcast with me, Tom English. This is a podcast about values, the good, the bad, and the ugly. In this episode, I speak with Martin Ruhl, who is Associate Professor in German History and Thought at Cambridge University. This is, I have to say, one of my favorite interviews so far, as Martin is an expert in the philosophy of Friedrich Nietzsche, And as those of you who have been listening so far will know, I've done a couple of episodes on Nietzsche and I don't think it's possible to have a serious consideration of values without dealing with Friedrich Nietzsche. So it was a fascinating conversation to have with Martin. I'm not going to say too much beforehand, but suffice it to say that he was raised on Nietzsche. His grandfather went into World War I as a German soldier with a copy of Thus Spoke Zarathustra, the war edition, and his father took that same copy into World War II with him as well. Zarathustra had a bewitching impact on Martin, as you will hear, and his experience with Nietzsche in academia was very different to that which he had himself as a boy. So this was a really fascinating conversation. If you think you know Nietzsche, then this episode may make you think again. Enjoy. Martin Rule, thank you so much for your time to speak with me on the Real Clear Values podcast. Thank you, Tom. Martin, I am particularly interested to speak with you. I've, I've had a couple of people on the show to talk in relation to Nietzsche and Nietzsche's philosophy, which is hugely influential. Of course, he was writing towards the end of the 19th century, but he had a huge influence on the philosophy of the 20th century, and his influence remains today. Now, I'm particularly interested to speak with you, Martin, because not only are you a long-standing storied academic in relation to Nietzsche, but you are also German as well, and you grew up with Nietzsche. And if I'm not mistaken, your grandfather had a copy of Thus Spoke Zarathustra going into World War I, and your father had a copy going into World War II. And of course, you have then picked up the baton, so to speak, and you have you've studied Nietzsche yourself. And so I just want to learn a bit more from you about your family story, if you like, if I can put it like that, in relation to, to Nietzsche and, and Nietzschean philosophy and, and what it really means to, to you and your family. Mm. Yes, there was that old torn copy of Zarathustra, um, a war edition on the um, shelf, um, on my father's shelf in the, um, in the family, in the very small family uh, library, which, which cast a bit of a spell on me. Um, it was an old German Gothic script, and it became clear to me, I must have been 12 or 13, that this, even though this was my father's copy, had originally belonged to his father. And um, the, um, the, um, on the on the uh, title page, it said uh, 1914, uh, Kriegsausgabe, Kriegsausgabe war edition meant that these were cheap prints um, mm. given to um, ordinary German uh, soldiers at the beginning of World War I. Um, and the copy um, at home in, 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 in my house showed my grandfather's, my father, my father's father's um, underlinings, um, but also his own, my father's marginalia, because my father had this very copy with him in his knapsack in, um, in World War II. Now, this Kriegsausgabe, um, this war edition of Zeitfustra, gives you an inkling of what um, Nietzsche meant and what this book in particular, Zarathustra, um, meant in Germany at the beginning of the 20th century and then also around the middle of the, um, of the 20th century in World War 
um, too. Um, it contained at the very beginning um, a selection of quotations by Nietzsche on war, Nietzsche zum Kriege. And um, this was selected by his sister, Elisabeth Förster Nietzsche, and they glorified war um, very much. Um, it's Nietzsche's paraphrase of Heraclitus, that war is the father of all things, that in order to be culturally great, um, a nation has from time to time find itself in war, fight great wars, um, really existential wars. There was something life-enhancing for war. I mean, all these quotations, obviously, carefully selected by Elizabeth mm. for this particular purpose, but nonetheless, they're there. Um, so they gave me from the start um, an impression of Nietzsche that did not really seem to sit very well with the kind of Nietzsche that I then encountered um, at university, first in Cambridge, and then when I did my PhD in Princeton. Um, in America, in particular, perhaps, Tommy, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, um, there was an attempt after World War II to um, denazify Nietzsche, to get rid of all this um, warmongering baggage. Um, mm. And I've made it my mission, perhaps under the spell of this uh, Kriegsausgabe that I encountered as a child, to maybe bring back, to put back on the map that other Nietzsche, the, um, the bloody Nietzsche, the dangerous Nietzsche, the one who challenges mm. um, our most... Um, deep-seated liberal democratic um, assumptions yeah fascinating this is this is so interesting because Nietzsche is so protean in the way that he writes and the way that he thinks that you can pretty much appropriate him to almost anything if, if you look at the people who claim to be influenced by Nietzsche you've got the far right you've got the far left you've got liberals you've got atheists you've got satanists for goodness sake so many so many people <laughs> have true. Yeah, and, and, and so many people have taken his work and they've they've basically reassembled it in, in their own image or in the image of, of their value. So with that in mind, Martin, what were the things that really stood out to your grandfather and your father? What, what were the sort of passages that they underlined in Zarathustra? I think my grandfather was trying to make sense of that particular war, uh, the First World War. Um, he interestingly underlined uh, passages that were not as militant or militaristic or as um, war-mongering. Uh, my father then in World War II, um, he really picked out um, the more aggressively anti-liberal, also anti-Western, also anti-English um, um, quotations. Um, Nietzsche didn't have much time uh, for the English. He looked down on them as utilitarian, liberals, Democrats. Um, and I think that set pretty well with the with the image that the uh, that, that Germans had of the um, of the English in both wars, really. But my, my grandfather um, I was like, I couldn't see the marginalia with my grandfather. It was just the underlining. So it was hard to see how he read it with my father, my father's uh, scribblings in the margins of the text. Um, that was um, was a different story. And there it became clear to me um, how easily Zarathustra um, could be read in this way, right, as a critique of Western liberal democracy and all the more philosophical values underpinning it. Yeah? It's not a political text by any means, um, but it has very strong political implications. Mm. 
Yeah, I, I think, and, and I can't, I, goodness, my, my German is, is not good at the best of times, but in the, the front of Zarathustra, it says something along the lines of it being a book for everyone and no one, doesn't it? And I think that pretty much sums it up quite well, doesn't it? And you mean that this reflects Nietzsche's protein nature as a thinker? Is that yeah, yeah the, the, there's some sort of inscription. Yeah, I'm a, the I'm a bit of wary book. of that, Tom. I hope you don't mind my. my no, my, go my ahead. Go ahead. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, in the Weimar Republic, a, um, a German intellectual, Kurt Tucholsky, uh, said that Nietzsche was endlessly malleable. Um, he mm. said, "Quote Tucholsky said, quote, um, tell me um, what you want to say, and I can provide you with a Nietzsche quote for it. It's a famous <laughs> statement about this malleable, um, protein nature of Nietzsche's thought. But I think there are. Um, if one reads them carefully and closely, there are certain motifs and strands um, that are quite consistent um, from the early Nietzsche, the Nietzsche of the 1870s, the Wagner acolyte, the German nationalist, the one who believes in cultural renewal, and the middle Nietzsche from human all to human to Zarathustra, and then the late Nietzsche. So, um, yeah. and war, for one thing, is um, always something. Nietzsche never says that war is is a bad thing you know? no. the war should be avoided there's nothing pacifist about nietzsche and that's strange because mm. nietzsche fought himself in the franco-prussian war in 1870 71 he didn't fight he was a medical orderly but he saw the suffering the pain yes. caused by war uh, close and he, he became very sick there a lot of his later ailments um were a result of of um, a diphtery um, and dysentery um, in, infection during the Franco-Prussian War, you know, and as a medical orderly, he he, he saw the corpses, he saw the, the wounded soldiers, and for some reason, he ignored, chose to ignore that and, and and turned war into a kind of stimulus, into something um, that allowed you to live dangerously and live a more full, a higher life, something that regenerated culture yeah. had the potential to re regenerate culture um there are other strands Nietzsche's emphasis on rank ordering rangordnung uh his um i think very consistent and emphatic anti-egalitarianism that's there from the start mm -hmm. and remains with his thinking um till the um till the end um so I, I think there is some co coherence and some consistency. Um, so he, he is not just protein. Of course, there, yes. you, you, you can find quotations in Saratustra itself yeah. to challenge some of the things I just said. But yeah. I think it takes more interpretive work. Yes, it, yes, it does. And, and, I, and I, very I very much agree with you in the sense that I think there are some very clear strands that go through it, notwithstanding the fact that so many people, so many different parties have appropriated his work for, for their own ends. I think a lot of them are actually mistaken. I don't think they've read enough Nietzsche, or at least if they have, they haven't thought about it clearly and carefully enough. And, and that, that's the thing. Nietzsche himself said that he's not, he's not that well. Under, he almost anticipated that he would be misunderstood by so many people. And, mm, uh, the, yeah. and, and he writes that. And it's a, there's a weird way about his writing in the sense that he, he knows that he's been watched. He knows that people are paying attention to what he's saying, even though he didn't really get much fame until until he was dead that it was it was posthumously that that he really came to the fore and he's he's influencing people like Mussolini and goodness knows who else is, is that correct that is correct um Nietzsche says um that one repays 
a teacher badly by blindly following him. So he wanted his disciples, his readers to read him creatively, um, to um, extract their you know, own meaning from his, uh, from his words, to turn um, his suggestions into their own new um, values. Um, abso absolutely. Nietzsche's caught in a conundrum, in a, in a problematic um, authorial space, you might say. Uh, he urges us to live authentically, to be our own lawgivers, to um, live our lives um, according to values that we ourselves create. So he cannot be mm. prescriptive, right? He cannot tell mm. us directly, yeah. explicitly yeah. how we should live. Um, so he chooses this rather subjective, sometimes aphoristic style of writing, often enigmatic uh, style of style of writing, in order to suggest rather than um, to command or exhort, mm -hmm. and that opens up these interpretive spaces. Right? Yeah. I still think that, as you just said, if we if we read him carefully, closely, if you read his notes to his unpublished works, um, we can see that some readings um, of him are more convincing than others. Yeah. And I'm not saying that a right-wing or a fascist with a capital F, a Mussolini-like reading um, is necessarily a better reading. Um, but um, Nietzsche's, the, the idea or the claim that this was a distortion, a corruption, a bastardization of Nietzsche's thinking, or that Nietzsche himself, had he still been alive in, let's say, 1922 or 1933, that he would have rejected the fascists. That's, I think that's nonsense. We don't know what Nietzsche would have said, right? Um, and I think the fascist reading of Nietzsche is a, is a plausible reading of Nietzsche. Mm. In Nazi Germany, there are endless debates uh, between Nietzsche champions and Nietzsche detractors. So there's also the sense that what he was saying did not lend itself. It was too anti-German. It was too anti-anti-Semitic. Nietzsche famously called himself an anti-anti-Semite um, to really be appropriated um, as, as a Nazi. Um, but there was definitely enough in there um, to allow people like Rosenberg, one of the chief philosophers of National Socialism, to put him on a pedestal. There's a reading, there's, sorry, there's a reason why um, Hitler um, has this photo taken of him in 1934, yeah. so a year after the seizure of power um, at the um, Nietzsche archive um, in Weimar. Absolutely. See, see th this debate, this discussion is fascinating to me because I, I read, I, I don't know if you've come across the, the work of of Ronald Biner of Toronto University. Mm, yeah, he, I have. I, I'm, I'm sure you're probably familiar with that book. I, I had him on the podcast last year. And, and his, his argument is that it's so obvious that Nietzsche is the far right guy, just as Karl Marx is the far less, that he can't understand why, why anybody who considers themselves to be liberal would be speaking in favour of, of Nietzsche. And, and there's this idea that, that, that it is actually quite natural, like you've said, it's quite natural that there were photos taken with Hitler, the, the Nietzsche archive and things like that. And that it wasn't just his sister, Elizabeth, who, who had manipulated these things in creating, you know, will to power, the, the, the book, the will to power and things like that. 
but on the other hand, you, you read the work of um, Sue, people like Sue Prideaux, for example, who, who wrote a fairly recent biography of Nietzsche in 2019, which was, well, it was published in 2019, which very much makes it look like his sister sabotaged him. His sister sabotaged his legacy. But like you said previously, the stuff is there. The, 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 the stuff is there to be taken, right? She, she didn't write that in herself. Now, you might say, well, she's, she's organized it in a certain way, which, which does have merit. But, but let, let, let's come on to, to another question mm-hmm. I've got here, Martin. And, and it goes back to what you were saying about this consistency that you can find in Nietzsche's writing. Martin Heidegger, from his lectures on Nietzsche, said that each thinker thinks only one single thought. Can that be said of Nietzsche? And if so, what might that one single thought be? I'm afraid it cannot be said. Um, Nietzsche okay. does um, make contributions. Nietzsche makes contributions to various fields within philosophy, epistemology, the theory of knowledge, um, ethics, uh, metaphysics, even these fiercely anti-metaphysical um, thinker. It would be really difficult to reduce that as Heidegger did um, to a single uh, thought, maybe an overarching idea. If you want Nietzsche, you know, in a nutshell, it would be something like um, live your life without any, without having recourse to any false, otherworldly, metaphysical Mm. hopes. Live your life fully, live it dangerously, live it authentically. That's very vague, but I think this critique of metaphysical thinking, for me, yeah. or this this attempt to to think and to live um, in a world without God, yeah, that is the basis of it. And Nietzsche really only I mean, he only says God is dead in the Gay Signs in 1882. So this is a later uh, point he makes. But I think this critique of metaphysical thinking that is there, what does that mean? Um, Nietzsche believes that even those of us who have shed their religious, mostly Christian beliefs in the last third of the 19th century, not many Germans were ardent, pious Christians anymore. But even those, he felt, were still living in the shadow of this dead God. What does that mean? It means that they still adhered to secularized Christian precepts or Christian ideas and ideals, you know, that there was something higher out there, that they ought to be meek, humble. You know, so Christian slave values were still with us. Take a seemingly lapidary and slightly kitschy statement like true beauty comes from within. Most of us would subscribe to that. And Nietzsche says, there is um, a metaphysical assumptions, a metaphysical assumption behind a statement like this, right? Yeah. That's, that's my example now, not Nietzsche's, right? I mean, there is something within a soul, a mind, a divine spark, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we say these things or we assume these things, these metaphysical uh, things, even when we have um, given up on, 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 on the Christian system as a whole or Christian dogma, right? So it's still with yeah. us. Or the fact that we think of ourselves as ontologically different from animals because we yeah. have free will, things like this. There is no such thing as free will, Nietzsche says. So Nietzsche is a naturalist as a 
ethical or moral thinker. He wants to bring the body back and he wants to say that there is no dualism really between mind and body or soul and body. These are all Christian uh, ideas that uh, have remained with us. And he makes it his mission really to destroy these idols, these false idols as he, as he sees it. Mm. And I think certainly from the early 1880s um, to 1888, so his la the last year in which he is sane, um, that is his mission. That's that's what he wants to do. So maybe this anti-metaphysical thinking that that's what we could his could sum it up. That's how we could sum up his his um, philosophizing. Yeah, that's quite interesting. You mentioned about that the anti-metaphysical element to his work seems so obvious when he's talking about things like the death of God and zarathustra the godless and goodness knows what else but and and this this is something that i did pick out of Biner's work was that is not something like the will to power and the superman is that not is that not metaphysical in and of itself because these things are so these concepts are so abstract and, and he's talking about man is something to be overcome and even the very concept of a superman that that sounds pretty meta metaphysical to me as well i think so yeah. The, the, there are so many paradoxes and so many tensions here with with Nietzsche in terms of in terms of Christianity the Christianity point is an interesting one because you mentioned already about the death of God and how it's declared in the parable of the madman which is in the, the gay science otherwise known as the, the joyous science as well depending on the translation but the, the, I think there is a paradox here as well and the, the, for, for me a potential area of debate is whether Nietzsche was gleeful about that or not, was he actually gleeful about the death of God? We talked about the, us being the, the murderers of all murderers in killing yeah. God and about borderless horizons, the, the, the handrails have come off. It sounds less gleeful and, and more like a lamentation, it, at, least in, at least in that parable. And I think, it, if I'm not mistaken, R.J. Hollingdale in some of his commentaries writes that mm. this created an existential crisis for Nietzsche and mm. Nietzsche's, Nietzsche's response to the existential crisis at the death at what he perceived to be the death of God was Zarathustra and the, the concept of the Superman, which is the antithesis to, to, to what Christ puts forward in the new Testament. Is that yeah. fair? It's that's a very fair assessment. So you've raised two things there. First, whether Nietzsche fills this metaphysical void created by the death of God with his own metaphysical concepts. He mentioned the will of power, the will of power, sorry, the will to power. Um, and then the question whether he's gleeful or joyful about the death of God. And you're absolutely right. Um, Nietzsche does not take this um lightly does not take this gleefully at all it's a heavy heavy burden we need to um fill this void because this void creates nihilism Nietzsche is sometimes misunderstood as a nihilist nothing could be further from the truth right um a world once filled with christian beliefs stabilized propped up by faith was an orderly world. And the world that he now sees around him is a world, a chaotic world, a world where values have lost their traction on us, where values can no longer provide orientation um, for us. So his goal, his heavy, heavy duty is to um, revaluate values to create new values that can provide such existential guidance after the death of God. 
But to do this without, <coughs> sorry, to create such values without simply replacing the old Christian dogma and doctrine, that is the challenge. And that's a challenge that he sometimes um, fails in order that, that overcomes it. That's, that's, uh, that's too much for him. Mm. I agree with you that the will to power can easily be read as a metaphysical concept. So for somebody who wants to wants us to embrace the fact that there is really only this world and no beyond and no dualism within us, right? Then what is this will to power? Could really say it's a remnant of his early Schopenhauerian uh, phase, right? Schopenhauer speaks of the will to um, life. Nietzsche makes this the will to power. Mm-hmm. So um, there, there are real problems there. Tom, yeah. Nietzsche was not a very um, systematic thinker. Um, he rejected the will to a system. He, 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 he thought this was uh, shallow and something um, that um, um, feeble minds need. Um, but this very unsystematic thinking also has mm-hmm. creates real problems um, for him. I think he's sometimes he's aware of these of these problems, mm-hmm. right? That he's um, replacing metaphysical values with new metaphysical values, but a lot of the time. He's not. Mm. You mentioned Heidegger earlier on. Um, Heidegger be- believes that Nietzsche's anti or non-metaphysical thinking was a failure that only he, Heidegger, mm. truly managed to overcome that long metaphysical tradition in Western thought from Plato um, to the 1920s. Um, and you could say that the style of Zarathustra this very biblical yeah. style in which yeah. he presents his ideas is an ironic but nonetheless um um desperate perhaps um attempt to um to provide new um values almost yeah. in the christian vein yeah there's a couple of things i want to pick up on there martin so you make make some really important points about values and about this kind of vacuum that the decline of Christianity creates. This is no small thing whatsoever. And, and Nietzsche fully understands that. And I think it's in Twilight of the Idols where he writes about, about the strength of Christianity being the integration of the system itself, how it's pretty much got, it's got everything systematized so effectively that people can live the values of Christianity without even knowing that they're doing yeah. so. And, and I think there's a, there's a phrase in there, there's a sentence in there, something to the effect of, for the English, morality is not yet a problem. Mm. And that was chilling. When I, when I read that, I thought, wow, because you look at the way things are in society at the moment, and there is a lot of upheaval, and there are a lot of questions about what is the meaning of life, not, not just about moral values per se, th- th- although there certainly are, but, but what does life actually mean? And in Christianity, you've kind of got this package where, well, okay, so we've got a God and he sent his son, Jesus Christ, and and this is the plan and this this is how it works. But when you take that away, the vacuum that that creates is absolutely immense. And so this, this, like we were saying before, you know, about the borderless horizons on the death of God is is a huge thing. And it's not a, it's not a small or an insignificant thing. I think you're right. I think Nietzsche is often associated with nihilism but he is he is talking about meaning he's talking about stepping into to who you are come what may and if you are one of the noble ones so to speak 
then you should be you should be at the top of the totem pole. Is that fair to say? Yeah. But the important point here is that this is only a very small minority of human beings sure. who have the capacity to transcend themselves, to leave behind that Christian package, as you, as you called it, to live freely, authentically, to create, to live by their own values, by new values, to have a meaningful um, existence. The vast majority of people um, will remain, morally speaking, slaves right they will remain enslaved to um this um christian system of ideas right and it's, i think this is one of the abiding misreadings of nietzsche that he it suggests that everyone or potentially anyone can transform himself into an ubermensch superman or overman it's 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 really you know only a minority a chosen few who have that um ability it's not clear if nietzsche counted himself amongst those uh, mm -hmm. chosen few um his own sickness his ill health speaks against it because yes. uh, these future superman these noble types um, as you rightly uh, call them they are strong not just in will and intellect um, but also um physically yeah. and so this whole idea that um, yeah. nietzsche is only talking about the spirit the mind um that's not true right that is already mm. metaphysical thinking yeah, yes. that, that we single out the mind or the soul, the, the personality, and forget about the body. Nietzsche wants us to think in bodily terms, right? Mm. The body, our desires, our passions, they are an integral part of everything we do, say, and even think. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. so there is a deep anti-egalitarianism built even into his moral philosophy, mm. right? Mm. Yeah, yeah. He uses phrases like the blonde beast, and and you, you think of a, a phrase like blonde beast, and you think of of something quite, 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 almost almost Nazi like before before the Nazis, and so like like you were saying before, I mean that that's that's an image that creates an image that that can be that can very easily be appropriated by by the Nazi Party, for example, in creating this sort of this sort of ideology and this sort of nomenclature that, that that fits around around a vision of superiority and dominance mm -hmm. and newfound nobility because Nietzsche was very much in favor of nobility wasn't he and, and he really lamented the if, if I understand correctly his, his real issue with with liberal democracy is that everybody's the same so he hates yeah. he hates equality because it, it 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 levels everything. It means nothing's great, nothing's superior, nothing's magnificent. Almost like the, yeah. the buildings that we see today. We don't see these the great architecture that we see in Rome and in great cities like that anymore. We see we see standardized blocks of flats and, and yeah. standardized office buildings. Everything's very functional yeah. and very pragmatic. Like you were saying, very English as as he would have understood it. So yeah. So so where where does this where does this almost obsession with nobility and and hierarchy where, where where does that come from in nietzsche nietzsche believes that christianity 
the Christian slave morality um, is based on egalitarian assumptions that before God, we are all the same. So Democrats, socialists, even liberals who believe in universal rights, for him are just liberalism, democracy, socialism. These are just secularized um, versions of Christianity in a way. Uh, these are attempts to, um, to use um, this, this Christian idea of, um, of all being the same before God for, for political um, ends. And this has to be um, unthought, this has to be undone, Nietzsche believes. Um, and um, he imagines um, a new nobility, which has nothing to do really with the, um, um, the nobility of birth or wealth, right? It is to some extent a, um, a new a spiritual nobility um, of higher types who have to assert themselves quite ruthlessly over the many, many um, lower types. He says that um, any elevations in Beyond Good and Evil, paragraph 257, any elevation of the type of man. So if we want to elevate man, raise man, make him more than he is right now, if we want to create the ubermensch, he says, um, requires an aristocratic society, a society based on rank ordering, and thus it will always be, he says, right? And right now, as you rightly said, in this liberal democratic age, one of the first things that Bismarck does when he founds the German empire in 1871 is to introduce universal suffrage, which Nietzsche hates. In this modern liberal democratic universalizing age, we have leveling, as he rightly says. Uh, rank ordering is the opposite of, of rank ordering. Everything is, is made the same. That means we, we moderns, we have barred us from the potential or we have diminished the, the capacity to create, to bring forth greatness. For him, that's cultural greatness to some extent. Um, the genius, the hero, the person whose life and whose art gives meaning to life as such in this otherwise meaningless, valueless uh, world. Um, and he sees no fertile soil around him anymore um, for the creation, for the emergence of uh, such a genius, mm. such a great type who could give meaning to our lives. Yeah, wow. That, 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 all, that, that all sounds pretty, pretty bleak and, and pretty... Darwinian and, and it must have been it is, and it, it is and it isn't. Um, there's also immense hope, right? There's the the the, the promise of the noontide, the great sure. noontide that we have in Zarathustra, that we also have in Twilight of the Idols. Um, the um, anticipation of a great turnaround. Um, there's his own will to transvalue and revalue um, values. Um, Nietzsche's emphatic that his philosophy is not a pessimistic philosophy like Schopenhauer's. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um it's a heroic pessimism he sees everything that is wrong but he feels that um such a pessimistic understanding still um allows for a heroic overcoming of the of the of the problems mm. and i think it is this hope of renewal of regeneration which initially he pins on germany and richard wagner in the 1870s mm. that lends itself to his fascist interpreters and appropriators. Yeah. What is fascism? There's been a lot of debate about the meaning or the essence of, of fascism, fascism with a small F now, generic fascism. Um, but one, I think, very powerful 
um, definition of fascism is that it's based on the promise of palingenesis, of rebirth. Yeah, it's a palingenetic ultra-nationalism, the idea that the nation can be, must be regenerated completely from the ground up yeah, right again. by violent means. This could also be through eugenics in the case of Nazism, yeah. in the case of Mussolini. It's, it's not racist, it's, it's, it's different, but a complete turnaround. Mm. And that is Nietzsche. Nietzsche introduces this idea, this idea of palingenesis, mm. I think, of, of renewal, of total, potentially violent um, renewal, mm. more forcefully into thought, into Western thought than any other thinker. Yeah? I think yeah. that is, that's really a, a core element of a thinker. This world that we inhabit right now is so decadent, and he even uses the word degenerate, that it must bring forth itself its own overcoming yeah right. there will out of this um debased decadent world a new higher world will eventually arise you know, he believes that these ubermenschen will come eventually wow so so this is in some respects this is this is almost like an inversion of of christianity in some respects because in christianity of course you've got You've got the second coming, but Nietzsche's saying, well, actually, there's going to be this. Is, is that what he would call the noontide then? The noontide is the point at which there will be this regeneration and that there will be the rebirth of nobility and, 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 and a master, well, I suppose. Um, a master, master morality. Yeah, ab absolutely. The, the, the great types, the higher types uh, will shed, will leave behind the uh, slavish values, Christian values that um, the majority of men still um, hold. Um, free themselves and uh, bring about a, a new life, uh, a higher life. He's extremely vague about how that future life, that heroic higher life will look like and how these higher types will interact with one another um, mm. and how society, how politically, you know, the world will be restructured. But a fundamental anti-egalitarian restructuring will have to take place mm, uh, in, in yeah. order to bring about this new world you know, yeah. the old democratic world is not fit um, for such a cultural re regeneration Nietzsche is not um, a political thinker by any means right that's very yeah. important he calls the state the coldest of all monsters in Zarathustra um, but politics or political change which is revolutionary to some extent in his eyes, or which will have to be revolutionary, will have to prepare the ground for a change in values, a change in thinking, yeah, this great spiritual um, revolution that he imagines. Yeah. Right, right now, the, the, the politics of the here and now will not um, do. And for me, again, you, you mentioned fascism early on. That is also a fascist idea to some extent, right? We think of fascism as reactionary. Um, fascism is re revolutionary. Yeah. Fascism wants to perform a great leap forwards, as it were. Yeah. It wants to transform the world. It's about control as well, isn't it? It's about, it's about control and, and this idea that there is this, this group of people, this leadership that knows better yeah. than everybody else, that does the thinking, and you just everybody else just does what they're told to do. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I say that in relation to, like you say about the the, the revaluation of values. You know, creating your creating the new law table, so to speak. Because, like you said before, yeah. he he doesn't think that everybody is going to be able to do this. This is this is for an elite to do this. 
It isn't for the, yeah, for the, ex- for the kid exactly. in the college dorm who's reading Zarathustra to think, oh, well, I'm going to go and create my own values and, and change the world, that yeah. sort of thing. He's thinking about, he's thinking bigger than that, isn't he? Exactly, exactly. It, 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 um, I think this is another misconception that Nietzsche was an individualistic thinker. Mm. He says so himself in one of his later notes, um, my, um, my philosophy is not an individualistic philosophy. And he does not want uh, the individual solitary reader to take away from his works uh, some inspiration. That's how it starts, perhaps, mm. right? But eventually, um, the, um, the, 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 the changes that he, that he calls for will have to be much broader and structural. There was a Christian slave rebellion once that overturned mm. the ancient world, this pagan, heroic, aristocratic world, you know, where we had master morality. So how can we undo that? Yeah. Right? How can we set in place structures, yeah. social and also political structures, that will be conducive to the elevation of the type of man and that will also ensure that there, will, that there won't be another Christian slave revolt undoing it again, right? So you need rank ordering, as you rightly said. You yeah. need fixed structures in a way. The, um, the, the idea of, of the, the, the Christian slave revolution is really quite interesting in, in, on the genealogy of morals because it's quite an elaborate theory of of Christ almost being a conspiracy theory put forward by the Jews to usurp power from the Romans. And I don't know how literally he means that, but, but it's really quite elaborate when, when you read it and you see him talk about this priest class that subverted, that subverted the powerful using things that, that are irrefutable. And in this, I think, I think Nietzsche almost contradicts himself in this because he kind of says, well, well they've, they've used things that, that are irrefutable to take the power away from the powerful. But then if you think, if those things are irrefutable, then are they not true? And, and, and are they not worth you paying attention to them in the first place? So there's a lot of res- respect for his enemy, Christianity. Yes. <laughs> Christianity has also made us ref- more refined, more sophisticated, right? The priest, the ascete, um, those are also interesting, powerful, resentment-laden, but nonetheless... Um, admirable types right there's a reason why they were successful they um they um they have their own will to power of course that they're trying to assert but right now especially after the death of god these values are just bearing down on us Mm. now they're still with us but we don't really believe in them anymore these christian values Mm. the end of the 19th century and the time has come to replace them, to to transvalue values, um, and Nietzsche sees himself, I guess, as the um, prophet of this new faith in inverted commas. Um, he's uh, the Saint John rather than the the, the 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 Christ. Nietzsche had a lot of respect, by the way, for uh, Jesus Christ. Right? He mm-hmm. says there was only one true Christian, and he died on yeah. the cross. Saint Paul, who turns. the teachings of jesus christ into um doctrines right so jesus in a way is a nietzsche-like figure just like nietzsche could be called a jesus-like uh, figure right he's a he's a rebel he's a transvaluator of values um but saint paul turns these teachings into dogma so he is the great um evil force in western thought 
Right. So that, that's who Nietzsche sees as, as his enemy then in, in relation to Christianity. Because what, what, what strikes me is that Nietzsche's, Nietzsche's enemy in relation to Christianity is, is more about the culture than it is about mm. the doctrine. And in some respects, I, I don't know. P- people say that, that Nietzsche is such a strong or such an effective critic against Christianity because he understands it so well. I, my personal take, this is just a personal view, I'm not sure that he understands the doc- the doctrines of Christianity that well, but I think he understood the culture very well, and he under- he understood hypocrisy very well, and and the, the worst parts of Christian culture. Goodness me, he, he has he has you know I I'm a Christian myself, and he has it banged to rights. And so I had um, another academic on this podcast who 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 taught at a Christian university. And one of my main questions to him was, why on earth are you teaching Nietzsche at, at this, this Christian university? And w- it was an interesting response because he said, well, basically Nietzsche holds a mirror up to everybody in the class to determine whether they're really living the values that they purport to live. And I, I thought that was a great way of looking at it because if, if, you, yeah. if you want somebody to test you, if you're for real in, in your Christian faith, then, then Nietzsche is a, a pretty good benchmark, I would say, in terms of, of, of putting that mirror up of, of are you are you serious about this or are you being a hypocrite yeah no i i think some of um the best critics of nietzsche that i've come across also here at cambridge um are christian mm. critics yeah? and and you're absolutely right there could be a lot more um sympathy on his part for the early less dogmatic, less institutionalized um, figures of Christianity. Um, his erstwhile collaborator at the University of um, Basel, Overbeck, um, he worked on early Christianity, um, hermits, um, Christians who go on to, into the desert and live by themselves, ascetes and so on. And Overbeck um, admires them greatly. He's like Nietzsche, he's, he's, he's skeptical of mainstream christianity but this true deep heartfelt uh faith um overbeck certainly um admired and i think nietzsche should have had more time for because it was actually not life denying as he claims um but in its own way also life enhancing Mm. so if, if you put these nietzschean questions to your students or if you're are you talking about someone else teaching nietzsche and yeah. Who, what, who was that yes. person? So, so it was um, it was a, a guy called James Faulkner. He he's a, okay. he was well he's emeritus at Brigham Young University in Utah. Oh right. So yeah. very interesting contrasts there. No, no, but but wonderful, and I, and I think there um, there is still a, a great book to be written, a, a Christian refutation um, of um, of Nietzsche. Maybe Faulkner mm. can do that now that he's um, retired. Yeah. No. No. Mm. He's. he's um, He's surrounded by people working on the early Christians in Basel. Overbeck, whom I just mentioned, uh, Bachofen too. Um, Jakob Burkhardt, his, his older friend, mentor. Um, he's written a book on um, Constantine. You know, the first Roman emperor converts to Christianity. Also quite critical of Constantine Burkhardt. Um, so that is a debate that's going on in Basel and also in Germany in the 1870s. Early Christianity versus later institutionalized Christianity. And Nietzsche does not join this debate. I think he could have been much more subtle there, nuanced in his, in his assessment mm. um, of Christianity. 
Yeah. Go, going back to, to Nietzsche as a prophet then, Martin, one of the things that Nietzsche, even, even Nietzsche's, people think they know something about Nietzsche because they've seen some Nietzsche quote somewhere about looking into the abyss or goodness knows what else. There are quite a few popular Nietzsche quotes that fly around on the internet in memes and goodness knows what else. But one of the other things yep. that's, that's quite well known about Nietzsche is about his uh, apparent prescience in relation to the history of the 20th century because he's writing towards the end of the 19th century. What, what prognostications, predictions did Nietzsche make about the 20th century? And, and, and what, what, what came true of those, you see? Do, do, do you see? How, how do you think that that really came to fruition? Well, he was certainly right that um, the 20th century would be um, influenced by Nietzsche, right? He called himself a posthumous thinker. He said some philosophers are born posthumously, um, and he thought that his fame would really carry into the 20th century. I think the first half of the 20th century, culturally, politically, I guess also theologically, um, is... Um, in the shadow of Nietzsche. Yeah, I, I think that, that some of the central debates, um, certainly for the philosophical debates, Heidegger, um, he, 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 he was right about this particular um, aspect, right? That he would um, have an influence, that he would have an impact. Um, he predicts wars, um, existential wars, not just petty wars, but great wars, um, was um, about values. I think that's a fair description. Uh, certainly what happens um, in World War II, it's a war of ideologies, right? Not just about geopolitical expansion or something like that. Um, mm. And it, it is actually, sorry, on that, po on that point, Martin, that, that really strikes me. I've just, I've just got to pick up on that because when, I, when you mentioned that about it, it being about a war on values, I think about Hitler. Hitler was so clear in what, what he was all about and what he wasn't all about. But also you had FDR as well. And when you look at FDR talking about the four freedoms and things like that, and when he stood up, he was very explicit in speaking against Hitler. And I think he understood, to be fair to FDR as a leader, he understood yeah. very, very clearly what was at stake here. It wasn't just about getting the, the, the Nazis back into their, their neck of the woods, so to speak. This was a yeah. very, very existential war. And it was about, there were very clear dividing lines that, that were separating the two sides. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's, a, that's a very good point. So this is not just Nazism or Italian fascism trying to impose their values on the rest of Europe or the world even. Um, it's also Churchill and Roosevelt and I guess Stalin um, defending their values. So it is a war of ideas on both sides. You're right about that. Um, the other thing that I believe Nietzsche was right about was this exacerbation of nihilism, that we live in an age mm. that the 20th century um, would be, um, to some extent at least, defined by the question of, of nihilism. And we could think about our own age now in the 21st century, um, as grappling with this um, with this issue, right? Yes. That the vacuum has not been filled. That um, we we are, we are not um, able anymore. Certainly not since the end of the Cold War um, to um, really account for what we do. Um, so 
this um the death of god in a terrible way is, is still hanging over us yeah that that's really interesting and i think this is fundamental to get into grips with with not just the appeal of nietzsche but the appeal of nietzsche in the context of the far right because because the, the people on the far right for example take ronald biner's book on nietzsche yep. heidegger and the return of the far right he had he had people coming for him proactively from the far right and saying okay i'm going to read your book and i'm going to I'm, I'm basically going to take down your argument and they were confident that they could do that and and the, and, and Biner himself, when he was on the podcast talking with me about this, said it's it's a smart, it's an intelligent review. And one of these one of these people has a PhD in philosophy on Immanuel Kant. So th th these are, these are not just kids who are just stuck in some basement somewhere, reading reading philosophy and left to their own devices. That's their time. They're are pretty smart people, and and they're some of them are pretty confident that they have that the, the liberals do not get to grips with this appeal of, of Nietzsche, this appeal of Nietzsche's work, and especially in the context of the far right and what the far right gives. And I I mean I'm I, I don't know what your thoughts are on this, Martin, but I think it's absolutely essential that if we are going to combat the appeal of this, we have to more fully engage with it. Like you, you said mm. before about Nietzsche's bewitching appeal or something to that effect. You use a phrase similar to that about how you mm. got into it when you were 13 or 14 in your teenage years and it had this bewitching appeal. I, I know exactly what you mean because when I've read this work, it's, it, it's very, very readable. It, it's, it's like scripture. It's, it's like scripture. It is written in a hieratic way and it is extremely appealing and extremely appealing from, from an existential point of view. And like you say, in, in this age of, in this age of nihilism, if maybe, maybe, if, if we want to call it that, it, when you look at things like deaths of despair, if you look at the bigger picture in society, I, I read a book in, I think it was in 2020, written by a couple of economists, Anne Case and Angus Deaton, called Deaths mm -hmm. of Despair. And, and this, this phenomenon of, of people dying through despair, whether, whether through, it was defined by suicide, drug overdose or alcohol. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and this is a growing problem. So notwithstanding, you know, take the take the far right situation out of the equation altogether. Just looking at deaths of despair and the fact that people feel desperate and they feel like they don't have any meaning in their lives and they're looking yeah. to numb themselves. Yeah. This yeah. is absolutely huge. So, so what can we take from Nietzsche? What, what is the value of, of what Nietzsche is teaching us that we can take and take it away from the disempower the far right and then use it to, to help people to find meaning in, in their lives or can it be done small question eh? <laughs> no it's a big question an important question and i agree with you tom that um we need to take that radical right right-wing radical appropriation of nietzsche seriously i think ronald biner i discussed this with him a year ago or a year and a half ago um, and I thought that um, this was not really what was at issue, that the ideas came from somewhere else or that, you know, Nietzsche just didn't lend himself to such an appropriation. Um, sorry, I, I, I believe that the fascist appropriation makes, makes sense. I, I, I just didn't think that the young boys in America or um, 
Trumpists or, or, or something in, 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 in America that they were really drawing on Nietzsche. But Ronald Beiner convinced me otherwise. He, he actually really showed me that there were real channels mm. of adaptation, appropriation there. Um, so yes, we need to take this seriously. That's, that's the first step. Um, I don't think that Nietzsche is the cure to the problem. I think he is the problem mostly. I think your question mm. was, can we use Nietzsche perhaps more productively mm. um, to fill the void? Um, I, I, I don't think um, that the those people who, who who die deaths of despair, as you said, in America, for instance, um, that 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 Nietzsche can provide them with any um, solace. Um, so I, but, but, I, I wouldn't but, but, go could, that far. So, sorry, Martin. Just on, just on that point, maybe, maybe not any solace, but but is there something about meaning? Is is there, are there maybe not Nietzsche himself, mm. but 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 is there okay. something in the ideas that Nietzsche is putting forward? That, that these people can take to, to provide meaning, you know, to create meaning. Do, do you know what I mean? No, I, I agree with you. Um, Nietzsche makes many contributions, but one key contribution that he makes as a philosopher is to raise the question of values. Uh, he reduces philosophy really to the question of values or value. Uh, he says, forget about truth. Uh, for millennia, philosophy was the search of truth. Some truths might be inimical, destructive of life, inimical to life, destructive of life. Others might be life enhancing. This cannot be our goal, but values, yeah. Meaning, a meaningful life, leading an authentic life, um, a, a full life, or what he calls a dangerous life. Um, there, I think he, he, he can provide us. I mean, that, that very idea that philosophy ought to do this. And we could really say that, um, and I say this with all due respect to my colleagues in the philosophy faculty here at Cambridge, that analytical philosophy has not done enough to fill that particular void. Um, mm -hmm. If yeah. you are concerned with the, um, with the problems of logic, um, then to me at least, philosophy has um, not really performed its social duty. Yeah. Mm. So there's a continental tradition there um, that I think speaks to us, can speak to us. And of that continental tradition, perhaps Nietzsche, more than anyone else, can speak to us powerfully about meaning, about value. Um, yeah, so in that sense, he could be not the cure itself, but perhaps sure. path there or an inspiration. Yeah, yeah. Th th there are some principles in what he's talking about that we can draw on to to find, yeah. to find meaning perhaps I, I think I think this is really I think that I think this is really really interesting and really really fundamental that we're able to get to grips with these ideas and and even if even if for example you know some people are really adamant that that Nietzsche Nietzsche's work is dangerous it's bad and everything else but can we can we find some can we find if, if you see that as the lie can you find the truth in the lie because I, I believe that, yeah. that, that that even in something that's really bad there's a there's a truth there to be had there's, there's a truth to be gleaned so so the people who who look at it and say well well i'm going to be an accelerationist or i'm going to join the far right movement or whatever there is something there that is true to them enough to convince them that yep. that is the right thing to do and and i, I think that the, the problem that we've got in trying to solve these problems from a societal point of view is that there's so much dichotomous thinking in relation you know take donald trump for example so so donald trump was has been seen as a massive problem he's caught he caused havoc across the western world and and, and beyond that i would say in, in terms of international relations when he yeah. when he was in power but in the run-up to him getting into power 
you had people like Hillary Clinton talking about deplorables and shame and all these other things that really weren't helpful because it was it was really it was really I suppose denigrating the people who had voted for Trump but the people who voted for Trump not all of them are deplorable bad people it's, it's ludicrous to to just assume that that's the case and and also I would say on that point going back to Case and Deaton's work on deaths of despair they found that a lot of people who were voting for Trump in those areas were also very sick they were very ill yeah. as well they had a lot of ill health so there's so many things going on there and, and it seems like there's a lot of work to do to, to really understand what's what's going on that's a political question and i couldn't agree with you more i think you're absolutely right um that this is a major flaw or major mistake um that um liberal democrats um, um make when they um simply ignore or mm ridicule um the far right or indeed just the right you know nowadays even being conservative um is is uh, something beyond the pale to some extent certainly in academia mm. um and um we academics live in a very um left liberal bubble and mm. there's a lot going on outside that bubble that we um, either don't know about or if we know about it, we don't take it seriously. But that's a separate point. Let me bring it back to Nietzsche um, and say how we can make Nietzsche useful um, to us and to this, to this present moment, this critical ideological political moment. Um, so Nietzsche is an anti-liberal. He doesn't believe in rights. He doesn't believe in universalism, um, key ideas of, of, of liberalism. But I think we can use him as a challenger. And if, if we are liberals, if we are Democrats, and I hope we are, then his critique can force us, can make us defend these values and assumptions underwriting liberalism that we often take for granted. Yeah, you know? yeah. So exactly. Nietzsche is um, a thorn in our side, right? And we, and we have to, we must mm. not democratize him, right? This is for me one yeah. of the, the greatest mistakes we can make in Nietzsche scholarship that we try to bring him over to our side. We have to accept mm. him in his radical otherness. He is, right, we, this has a lot to do with the postmodern Nietzsche of Foucault and Derrida and Deleuze, yes. right? They make him a proto-postmodern, but he was a child of his time. He believed in eugenics, for instance, right? He believed mm. in some form of social Darwinism, in some slavery form of reading. Well. Yes, slavery as well. Um, it's a complicated issue, but right. So this is Nietzsche, you know, a child of the of, of the late 19th century. Right? We mm. cannot make him um, one of us. So let's preserve him as an anti-liberal thinker, or let's acknowledge him as, as this fiercely anti-liberal, anti-democratic thinker that he is, and allow that critique of his to challenge, and through this challenge, maybe to strengthen our own liberal democratic beliefs. And you could make the same point really about Christianity again. We touched on exactly. this earlier. Exactly. Right? Um, that it would be easy for a Christian theologian or just a Christian believer to, to brush him aside as mm -hmm. uh, as mad as, you know, critics of Nietzsche love to um, invoke this fact, oh, well, he turned mad, you know, as if this was some kind of proof mm -hmm. that his thinking was unsound. Um, let's take him seriously. And yes. what he has to say about Rasantimo is very psychologizing 
analysis of um, of Christianity of Christian values might that that's still relevant and I think it could force Christians to to um, again to strengthen and to refine their their own positions so let's take them seriously but in order to take them seriously I think we we have to um, preserve him. We have to read him historically. We have to preserve him in his in his in his otherness, yeah, and not make him more like us. I think that's an excellent place to finish. Martin Rule, thank you so much for your time on the Real Clear Values podcast. Thank you, Tom. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Real Clear Values podcast with Tom English. If you know anyone who is looking for success that's both meaningful and sustainable for themselves or their organization, then please send them this podcast. And if you yourself are looking to create a life of purpose, meaning and fulfillment for your own version of sustainable success, then I offer a mentoring program that will get you on your way. Just go to threestewardships.com or message me directly to tom at threestewardships.com. That's tom at threestewardships.com. Until next time, I'm Tom English and I wish you all the best in your own pursuit of sustainable success.